Hi, I'm Sakrad Singh from Sikh Archive and welcome to the 10th episode in our podcast series of conversations with historians, authors, academics, journalists and activists on topics related to their areas of expertise on Sikh or Punjabi history. In this episode, we're joined by Professor Radhika Chopra, who is the author of the book Militant and Migrant, which is the book we will largely be discussing today. But she's also written the most recent book titled Amritsar, 1984, A City Remembers. The book Militant and Migrant offers a detailed analysis into the social and political landscape of Punjab prior to the events of 1984, such as the role and impact of the Punjabi Subalair, as well as the infamous Green Revolution. Professor Radhika Chopra considers the environmental factors that surrounded the demands for greater autonomy, as well as the consequences of policies that contributed to the reconstruction and displacement of Punjab. In addition to that, the book explores how the movement and its legacies extend and contribute to exist beyond India, with respect to migration and the significant role of the diaspora in preserving the memory of those that gave their lives for the movement, as well as the commitment to keep the remembrance of the overall Khalistan struggle and narratives ongoing. But before we start, a quick message about our sponsor of this episode from Six Student Learning, which is an educational resource that is developing a comprehensive Six Studies modular program for sick children aged between 4 to 16 years, with the option to take exams for modules and obtain certificates of achievement. And right now they've published a new series of Gurumukhi learning workbooks for those looking to learn how to read and write Punjabi. They are an excellent resource for new parents wanting to teach their children the culturally rich mother tongue that is Punjabi. You can find them at www.sixstudentlearning.co.uk. But now, back to the podcast to learn more about the historic, socio-economic and political landscape of Punjab that led to the events of 1984 with Professor Radhika Chopra. Can you tell us about who Radhika Chopra is and what inspired you to write the book Militant and Migrant? Actually, um, most recent, my most recent publication on this has been on Amritsar. It's called Amritsar 1984, A City Remembers. And that's a 2018 publication that came after Militant and Migrant, which is about the sort of contemporary social um, and political history of Punjab. Uh, but uh, I, I see the two books sort of going together because I think my research went along like that at one level. Um, so somewhere, sometimes I might talk of one and sometimes of the other. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm a sociologist, basically. Um, though in India, when we say sociology, particularly of the University of Delhi, um, we include in it a lot of anthropology and a lot of sort of ethnographic methods. So the primary way in which I went forward uh, with my research was anthropological, um, fieldwork based and so on. Um, I, kind, I lived in a village, a small uh, village, which was a totally different experience from me for me as a very urban, metropolitan, urban 
English educated, convent educated, what we call convent educated here in India. I, I had very little inkling about Punjab itself. So uh, my first, I mean, I, I think I went into it almost feet first and stayed in this village for almost a year and a half and then kept went back to it a couple of times. I was, this was for my thesis, uh, for my uh, PhD thesis. And that's how, I mean, I had really begun earlier with a earlier smaller piece of research, which tried to look at uh, the emergence of what I thought was some something quite important, um, uh, the emphasis of uh, conflict within Punjab. And at that point, I was focusing on the issue of the agrarian politics and agrarian conflicts and saw within those formations, a kind of very intense caste-based conflict, though the material I kept coming across emphasized two kinds of things. One, the issue of the dominance of the Jats, and the second, uh, the very scattered material, but quite rich material on the emergence of the uh, lower caste communities, but how fragmented uh, when we say lower caste community, it, it isn't a single one at all, and it's very various. And that fragmentation, what did it do to politics and conflict and uh, agrarian relationships and so on? So, uh, and most of all as well, I mean, not most of all, but uh, sort of twining into that uh, was the electoral politics and the uh, issues that uh, were rooted in different kinds of claims, different tenors uh, and claims. One, of course, was that of a Sikh identity, uh, the second of language, uh, the third of land, the fourth of uh, kind of, uh, and at that time, when I was writing this first piece of research, it was 1980, 81, the intense separatist politics wasn't even, uh, didn't seem to be even a jhalak on the landscape. But now looking back, I realized the signs were already part of it. Because by already by 1982, the issue of um, uh, water sharing, the issue of uh, the need for uh, control over river waters had already come to the fore. Um, so that was how I kind of began my journey, thinking very narrowly, as one does sometimes as a PhD student, you have a very uh, almost telescopic <laughs> vision, and that's how you proceed. So I was really just doing a kind of village study in Punjab, trying to learn about what it meant when people said that for Punjabis, their culture is rooted in agriculture. And of course, people make that as a joke, right? I mean, they, they toss it off as uh, something which says that, you know, for Punjabis, uh, their culture is agriculture. And I wanted to go to the root of that joke, I suppose. I wanted to bring out what did this actually mean when agriculture becomes a cultural mode, a way of being, a way of relating to the world, a way of living your life, a way of imagining who you are. Um, so I think that's, that's how my work went forward. And in that uh, sort of formulaic uh, 
in that uh, engagement with trying to understand what this culture of agriculture really was, realized how intense issues like the politics of water, the issue uh, like the uh, sharing or uh, not having land, uh, the issue of uh, labor being available when it was of cheap labor, the uh, issue of internal migrants uh, that is internal to India, non-Punjabi uh, people coming into villages, creating and encountering different cultures and introducing their own. So things like that were, uh, were really important for me. Um, and that's how it all kind of began, really. In your book, you outline the social and political historical context in 1984 and about the greater movement itself, where you elaborate a lot on what underpinned it in that respect, uh, especially considering some of the large events or government policies that took place prior, such as partition or the Green Revolution. Could you offer a brief timeline of events that lead us into what eventually unfolded in 1984? So there are two aspects uh, to this uh, and, you know, they are so uh, interlinked. Sometimes it's uh, hard to disentangle them. But uh, uh, beginning with, uh, let's say, the late 19th century and the early 20th century, uh, the emergence of uh, what uh, the emergence of uh, a consolidation of the idea of who is a Sikh and uh, what does Sikhism mean? And therefore, within Sikhism, what is the sense of identity and community that is being created, which was very much part of the early 19th, uh, um, sorry, the early 20th century uh, political um, encounters between uh, Sikh Jathas and the colonial state, for example, uh, Sikhs and um, Hindu Brahmanical trends of how Sikhism was uh, practiced. Um, it was more amorphous. Uh, I think there are many people who've written about that. Harjot uh, Oberoi is a wonderful example of that kind of writing. But leading on from the 19, that, that sort of colonial period, you know, the partition is something that I have not myself focused a great deal on other than to say that so many of my family members, after all, underwent, traveled, migrated, moved because of partition and the events of partition. But my concerns have been, uh, Sukhrat, so I'm going to concentrate a little more on those. My concerns have been a little more of the late 20th century. Yeah, that I wanted to look at 1984 as an event but as an event that didn't come from nowhere. That so, so there is a past to 1984. And one of the key aspects of that past has been uh, the language movements. And I think that um, where partition impinged upon this uh, question is that at the time of partition and subsequently in independent India, uh, Sikhs were felt themselves somehow discounted, not taken 
as a community with their own right, their own cultures, with their own language, with their own script. And that's the emergence of the Punjabi Suba movements for uh, in the 1960s, uh, which were also quite ferocious, which were also uh, very intense, and which did create the current uh, state of um, Punjab in India, the, the shape of Punjab in India, produced a new state of Haryana after all. So I think 1984 has that lineage to it as well. It's not just the colonial uh, issues of the distinctions between, uh, you know, allowing Sikhs to express a particular form of consolidated community, but really something that also uh, by which uh, land, sorry, not land, but territory, uh, identity, control over resource, and in a way, an expression of a kind of federalist uh, impulse, which is part of the Indian constitution, but which had never really been acknowledged um, until I think the uh, Sikh movement started expressing it quite firmly and quite uh, clearly. And I think that articulation of that federalist autonomy, the insistence on federalist autonomy, comes to a head by 1980, in the late 90, early and uh, late 1980s, in that period, most of all. So, yes, 1984 was an event that shook all of us. I lived through part of that event. I was, I was a, a young adult at the time. And uh, knew what the riots of Delhi were, uh, read, had read so much about uh, what preceded it in um, Punjab, uh, what was happening there, some of the reports that were coming through and so on. So I know that uh, period, if you will, as a person who has also lived through it, not just as an anthropologist looking at it very objectively, but, you know, what did it mean for i just give you a small instance. Um, just in, uh, in the summer of 1984, uh, my parents used to go to a small hill station called Dalhousie. It's in Himachal, but it abuts Punjab. It's uh, uh, all, you know, uh, quite near to uh, the Punjab border. And when... Uh, uh, curfew was imposed just prior to the occupation of the Darbar Sahib in, on June 5th. Curfew was imposed not only on Amritsar, which has been something that has been written about quite a lot, but on Punjab as a whole. So the borders were closed and uh, there was a lot of sort of police, primarily police and paramilitary uh, action in Punjab at the time. And Dalhousie, given that it was a sort of small hill station, very quiet and so on, uh, suddenly became sort of rife with rumors about how militants had fled into the hills and were hide-taking shelter in the forests nearby and so on. So there was this sort of sense of complete uncertainty. And then the army shut down and controlled Dalhousie as well. So uh, because um, Dalhousie has a cantonment um, a military base very near, uh, next to it, as it were. So uh, there was this very peculiar moment for me. Um, I wasn't anywhere near Dalhousie at the time. I was in uh, near Bangalore, in fact, um, during that summer, writing up my thesis quietly. 
to hear that my parents were in this town and I had no news of them and I didn't know whether they could leave there or what would happen to them and so on. So there's this sort of peculiar nature and I can just imagine that for uh, many people, uh, Punjab militancy came home to them literally in this kind of uncertain way. So 1984 has been explored at great length as an event. But I think what what this instance that I've just narrated to you, this personal instance that I've just narrated to you, is that uh, it also had, it also was preceded by certain things and it also has an aftermath. And I think both these aspects, what is it that preceded? How did people live through the impending sense of crisis that was that they didn't know would happen. It was a bit like partition. People didn't actually expect partition to happen quite like that. I think they didn't really expect the military operation uh, in the Darbar Sahib and the occupation of the Darbar Sahib and the destruction of the domes of the Darbar Sahib and so on to happen. There, there was no such sense that this, is, uh, this was an event of such magnitude uh, that would literally transform so much so many lives and the politics uh, of so many lives. So I think if you if you look at those uh, prior ways of living and the way in which this event then unfolded after the fact, after it was over, so to speak, and it still continues to live on. Um, it's something that I've written about then in Amritsar 1984. A City Remembers, uh, that's the point of my, uh, that book, to see how does this event live. You refer to the Anandpur Cyber Resolution quite a lot in your work. Is that a document, an example that challenges the federalist structure and philosophy of India? I, I do pay attention to it because I think it was like a charter of demand. It was a charter uh, it's often treated like, uh, you know, um, uh, a set of demands. But I think it was more than just that. I think it was, in fact, the what I call the constitution in the making for this new imagined nation of Khalistan. So I think there was a sense in which uh, the Anandpur Sahib resolution was a very um, uh, significant document, not only of the movement, but also one that put forward a set of arguments, if you will, a set of demands. Most people have written about mostly from the perspective of uh, an, uh, Sikh identity and the insistence on, uh, on a sort of exclusionary, uh, militant understanding of Sikh identity. But when you look at the Anandpur Sahib resolution in some detail, it does talk about the rights of states over their resources, land and water, of course, uh, but infrastructural resources that would uh, that had a huge impact. For example, prices, uh, agricultural prices. Uh, for example, the sale of uh, particular agricultural goods, not just of grain, but things like cotton, oil seed, things like that. So. Uh, 
there's a lot of um, the uh, issue of uh, the agrarian within the Anandpur Sahib resolution, which I think has often not been paid. I mean, people don't pay attention to that. But I think it does put forward uh, the notion that um, the Anandpur Sahib resolution and the Khalistan movement does come from the idea that agriculture is not just a way of life in a cultural way, but in a political way. That agriculture was also about the politics of the self and the politics of identity. Adding to that, what role did the Green Revolution play with regards to the impact it had on Punjab? Well, uh, uh, let me just say that uh, uh, the Green Revolution was a funny thing at one level. It was uh, actually, at the time that it was even being thought about, there was such a emphasis, there was such a belief in-house on the transformative potential of science and how science could really change the world in such an enormous way that, uh, um, you know, people would just prosper that as though science had no agenda. But we'll come, we'll leave that aside for a moment. But I think there was this complete faith. And I think for Nehru and others, there, there was a sense in which they believed uh, that adopting these new technologies would really help India overcome its terrible food crisis. And one of those has uh, sort of immediately preceded the in- introduction, the formal introduction of what we call the Green Revolution as a sort of omnibus term. But the IADP program, as it was actually more formally known, uh, the Intensive Agricultural IA, uh, development program, the IADP program. And what, what preceded its formal adoption was famine and floods uh, and real hunger. So I think this was a political imperative for, uh, for India in the 60s. How do you feed people? How do you deal with hunger? The Green Revolution didn't actually, unfortunately, accomplish what uh, the hopes were. Uh, Because what unfortunately happened was that the way the IADP and Green Revolution policies unfolded, they gave a kind of emphasis and a preference to people who already held land, held land in their own names, and it was registered in their own names. So the first skewing, if you will, already happened towards those who were landholders, landowners, Secondly, that they could not be very small landholders. You had to have uh, at least five acres and above to qualify to get the, you know, these new biotechnologies, the new seeds, the new fertilizers, and thus um, even the loans, even the credit. Yeah. So you had to have at least five acres. So you were already just above the minimal farmer, the subsid, uh, you know, the complete subaltern farmer. You also needed to have uh, certain, you know, other infrastructural possibilities, if you will, or certain in- infrastructure capacities. So you had to have assured irrigation. So land ownership registered in your name, five acres and above, and assured water supply. This this completely skewed the. Uh, gains of the Green Revolution towards those who were already economically, hierarchically more secure. 
so the Green Revolution, by its very policy orientation, created a whole slew of people who were left out. The policy was actually without thinking, if you will, or perhaps deliberately thinking, but without really taking in the political consequences of what that might have meant, the economic consequences of what leaving out uh, would mean, uh, left out a whole set of people, including, uh, you know, uh, people who were small farmers, certainly the landless, certainly those who were lower caste, certainly those who had no, who were tenants and sharecroppers and people of that kind. So uh, there was a sense in which, you know, the Green Revolution itself gave rise to a lot of discontent and a great deal of debate and conflict within village societies, within the internal politics of villages. I can tell you that, you know, while I was doing my study, and this was 20 years after the Green Revolution was first introduced, I was doing my study in 1982, 83, and the first half of 1984, there was a sense in which many of the people who had even 10 acres of land, and that was well above uh, that five acre cutoff, were feeling that they, you know, they weren't being able to meet the costs of uh, farming. So what they were losing out through the insistence that, you know, this was the kind of cropping pattern there needed to be, this is the kind of fertilizer inputs there need to be, this is the kind of uh, uh, water supply you need to ensure at critical moments, this is how the labor cycles must work. The agrarian cycles actually just completely changed the way that people related to agrarian ways of life. And there was a sense, a real sense of loss, a real sense of a receding, I mean, a perceptible sense that, uh, you know, things that you knew that you could culturally and otherwise bank on were no longer available to you. So there was this uh, it wasn't just disaffection which was economic. It was also a, a real sense of insecurity that was created by the policies of the Green Revolution. And I think uh, they were they did create the seeds of uh, uh, Khalistan, a demand for autonomy, a demand for the rights and claims over resources that would be managed by the community. Now, what that community was, we can sort of, uh, was itself not that inclusive, but uh, certainly it banked on uh, a, a singular consolidated identity. And they looked to religion. Religion was a time factor. It was the glue uh, that brought people together. So even those who felt that they had been left out hoped that this new nation would be more inclusive of them would recognize them as kind of, you know, uh, secure citizens, as people who, who were viable people in a way, viably, uh, who could uh, exert a set of rights over credit, over land, over ownership, and so on, in a way that the Indian state had not managed to assure them of. And now, as we enter the second half of the discussion, I wanted to ask, uh, how did these historical events, such as partition and the Punjabi Subbalair and the Green Revolution and so on, how did they all contribute to the displacement and reconstruction of Punjab? Well, I, I guess uh, one of the things that uh, 
all these different things uh, led towards was a very violent conflict, was a very, um, uh, well, let me put it like this, uh, led to a very militant stance against the central control over Punjab and Punjab's resources. And that militant stance was expressed most clearly within a kind of Sikh politics, which already had a past, okay? So uh, the 1920s Sikh reform, the 1960s Punjabi Subha movement, uh, the uh, the, the uh, debates and uh, fights over uh, water and particularly the Bhakra Nangal Dam, etc. All of this had consolidated debates, you know? I mean, they weren't they hadn't disappeared. So we we date those, but uh, people remember them too. They remember what, uh, you know, the disappearance of water meant in their lives and to their fields and to their family fortunes. So uh, I think that there is a sense in which the idea of uh, Khalistan was consolidated around religion. It did, though, produce uh, a set of people who had a very strong and militant stance against what the centers was doing to their lives. Um, many of the, when you, when you look at the profiles of militants uh, who became engaged with uh, uh, the Khalistan movement, you see many of them as people who were belonging to small um, wh whose families had small holdings, land holdings, who were primarily Sikh, who were had some education, possibly up to you know school leaving, and that was it. So there was, uh, so they were literate, uh, they were educated and literate, uh, but they they were exactly the people who felt most disadvantaged by uh, the tenor of uh, central central state policies. Uh, in Punjab, and they were the ones who were uh, literally the the greatest numbers who joined um, the movement, and they were young. They were trend between the the average mean age of militants of the time was between the ages of uh, nineteen and twenty three. I think it was something that cohort of youngsters, uh, young men. So for, you can imagine that for families, and when I was doing my field work, I was seeing this before my eyes. Remember, I'm doing my field work in this village in 1982, 1983. And there are all these young men, you know, who are part of the family with whom I was living and others whom I was interviewing. And uh, they were just sort of hanging around, but they were also, you know, quite aggressive, uh, aggressively expressing uh, their dissatisfaction with uh, the police, the state, they were being picked up. So for families, these young men were trouble. Uh, and I don't mean that uh, they were just bringing trouble in through the front door. But uh, for many of these families, they felt that, oh, they're going to be picked up by the police. They're going to be killed by the militant. They'll be usurped into or become part of these, uh, you know, uh, sort of militant bands and jathas and things. And they, they, they really wanted these young men away from this context. They wanted a different context from, for these young sons, brothers, uh, husbands and so on. So there was active 
planning, active strategizing. And it didn't always come across like that, mind you, because it was all this ahoji or onadimasi, or then onanu peps de ye, onanu kaye, chitti likho, tusi khat likho, you know, things like that. So there was, but there were, you can see that there was a lot of deliberation about trying to remove these young men from contexts with which families felt were dangerous for the young men and dangerous for the family because police would start coming into the families and take, you know, uh, start questioning families. Where's your son? What was he doing last night? Where has he been last week? Do you know where he is? Who is his friends? You know, that kind of cross-questioning was had begun happening already. So a great deal of uncertainty was created by the policies of uh, this, the security uh, apparatus of Punjab at the time. And in that context, that actually begins to create uh, this kind of migration that happened, you know, this sort of pushing out of youngsters who would not have been, they're not distress migration in the sense that we know of migration. They're not people without resources. They are in fact sent off under the guise of the kind of people who you talked about uh, when we first uh, spoke of the who came from uh, to Denmark and you know Europe and Denmark uh, as uh, Sikh migrants. They came as sort of seeming tourists, uh, right? I mean, they just came for shock. They came as travelers almost. And this was used as a kind of a disguise, literally, a kind of guise under which these young men were sent off. So you're saying that there was this large backdrop of fear. Yeah. I mean, those stories are intercut with a kind of unspoken fear, but that fear was palpable. You couldn't miss it. Even if nobody said anything about it outright, and obviously you could sense it in all the little other gestures that surrounded everyday family life, um, you know, uh, insisting that um, people don't, young men particularly, don't go out on their mobikes or are home by seven o'clock. I mean, it was like living in a girl's hostel, you know. So that sense that, okay. Outside is fearful. Outside is uncertain. Better to be home. And then home became uncertain. Better to go somewhere else altogether. Could you please explain this phenomena of the Karjoy, uh, which you write a lot about in your book with particular reference to 1984? Well, the Karjoy in Punjab, the way that uh, uh, systems of marriage uh, work, women move into their uh, husband's paternal homes, into their husband's homes. They live with the husband's, I won't even say husband's homes, I'll say that with the husband's family because uh, even the husband at the time is a fairly young man. So he's not particularly in charge of things even in his own home. He's still under the authority of his father or grandfather or something of that kind or a whole corporate group of uh, elder men. Um, so it's in, in this whole structure, it's the women who move and the men who stay in their own homes. And that's how lineages are counted. That's how uh, land is transferred. That's how 
izzat is consolidated um, and so on and so forth but uh, the more closely you look at this uh, picture it isn't um, something that is as secure and immovable or immobile as all that because even bef- well before the reason that uh, the karjavai has become a is an institution that is talked about in law uh, particularly in customary law uh, the karjavai has particular rights and most uh, one of the key reasons for people to move as karjavai is land particularly agrarian land or small businesses so uh, men move into their wives home if there is a sort of you know the father in law has a successful business and he'll get a secure job and uh, they live there or there is a um, and certainly in the case post green revolution uh, the need to retain holdings at 5 acres and above being one of the key reasons why you would get certain resources um or certain policy benefits meant that the land couldn't be divided amongst all the brothers equally you had to have that one person who retained in his name as a registered owner 5 acres and above and if he had less he'd be discounted uh, as a claimant for certain benefits so the need to send other male claimants away the need to push them out into other uh, ways of uh, you know earning their livelihoods and living their lives the karjavai was an option and people um, adopted it i mean um, people who's um, if you look at some of the land records the patwari records the local history the local level records uh, at the village level it's very interesting to see how these lineages uh, there are some lineages there which are clearly belong to uh, somebody who who had come from another village and doesn't really belong there but came because the father in law had land and he farmed it and that land then doesn't go to him he is not the person the karjamai is not the person who owns that land that land devolves upon his son so he is literally as a landholder uh, has less legal status than his own son so he is like a conduit for the regeneration the reproduction of land relations but one generation displaced and how did the karjwai extend beyond borders with reference to 1984 because my understanding is that it somewhat evolves and becomes geared towards this idea of asylum in that period well um in the sense that uh, the transnational karjamai again was not an unknown phenomena it was a way in which uh, people moved uh, and uh, were sent off you know that they could get a passport they could get a residence permit they could get all those things that are required to be able to migrate uh so moving as um, transnational karjavais is not an unknown phenomenon certainly there and recorded in some of the uh, literature uh, that i've also quoted in my book uh, helwig and uh, others um the east london community of sikhs uh did display uh, a number of families who were formed through this import of husbands in southall where i did my work uh there were certainly a number of families that i came across who grew from let's say the imported husband phenomenon having said that 
it's also interesting to me how the transnational context, uh, uh, context created a very different sense of the Gharjavai. So if in India there was a sense in which the Gharjavai was inferior to his own son, in the transnational context, this did not happen because Gharjavais then became the, uh, produced the sort of conduit, the hub to literally import other relatives of their own. And they created their own kind of, you know, uh, hub of people who were their relatives. And they created a kind of paternal context of themselves within these transnational contexts. And certainly in South Hall, uh, I tracked uh, three families which were like that, which emerged from uh, this person who had been brought in to marry a girl uh, and become a Gharjavai because that was the only option available economically and otherwise, and then established uh, links with others from his own village and others from his own family. So he became a pretty important figure in the import of migrants to facilitate migration uh, into um, places and neighborhoods like South Hall. So uh, it's a very interesting pattern that uh, the Gharjwai then shifts the shame, if you will, away from uh, the, the stigma onto something that is quite valued uh, because he becomes uh, literally somebody who can enable the migration of others. And so subsequently speaking, what impact did that have on diasporic formation with respect to the Khalistan movement and more generally homeland politics? I think the two were not, did not overlap so seamlessly. I think they were at one level somewhat parallel, but of course they intersected at some moments of time. That is to say, so when things became so politically uncertain and so violently uh, torn apart within Punjab, the, the trouble of having a young man in the house uh, became something that families literally had to think out. I mean, they had to think of the future of this young man in a way that was totally novel, in a way that was totally distinctive and different from... Um, other ways of uh, sending these young men away. Um, so some of them, of course, fled. Uh, some of them actually just went underground and then found their way uh, via uh, the Northeast, via Nepal, via, um, you know, various other routes uh, to the West, uh, to Europe, to England, some to America and so on. Yeah, that trajectory of migration was a migration that had a very specific period that was part of a very specific period of time. I would say that it began from 1981, 8081, and went right up to the middle of the 90s, um, even the mid 90s, until the borders of uh, the, you know, the English borders or the, the borders of uh, the United Kingdom and Europe and so on started closing down uh, for uh, people who came for these political reasons. Because once they arrived at, uh, you know, at the German border or uh, England uh, and so on, they declared themselves to be asylum seekers or in need of protection of asylum and so on. 
And it's that, it, it's quite interesting in that uh, that's the moment in which the already settled community actually takes over and tries to enable the um, uh, legal processes of bringing of uh, these asylum claims and so on. The local community was very active in uh, the asylum politics of uh, many of the people who fled from Punjab at the time. Uh, the transnational community was, um, you know, provided um, money, legal fees, legal advice, and of course the Gurdwara networks became quite important because they gave shelter, they gave spaces to, uh, for people to stay. Uh, but um, the reason why the Gharjavai and the political asylum do intersect in certain ways is because not every family wanted their son to run as an, a refugee or become a refugee and an asylum seeker because that was a completely uncertain process as well. Um, and you didn't know where it would end up. You didn't know its political fallouts in the place of uh, transnational migration within the transnational community, because within transnational communities, there was deep rifts and deep divides between those who supported Khalistan and those who did not. So these young men were not wholly out of danger even there once they migrated. Uh, but um, certainly the Gharjavai option that some families did adopt, I didn't find many. Uh, there were just one or two that I literally stumbled upon, I have to say, was again that kind of guise, you know, that kind of cloak that you put on the real reason why you want to send your son away. And it just becomes uh, the proffered reason, the more public reason why or how he's gone and why he managed to go. And just finally, again on the question of diasporic formation, what are some of the particular things you had noticed with regards to maybe the role of memory and commemoration of 1984, as well as the continuation of the campaign? Again, um, diaspora funding of some of the militant outfits has been uh, quite well recorded and is certainly acknowledged and the diaspora involvement in uh, the build-up of homeland uh, politics for a separate state was very much uh, part of the picture. Some of the more, uh, some incidents are actually put down to more, uh, to the diaspora fundamentalists, let's say. And so the diaspora of Sikhs was in some ways also uh, both involved with keeping the movement going, but also uh, the place uh, kind of providing a sanctuary for those who fled and uh, those who sought sanctuary uh, in transnational places. Um, but I think that in some ways, the diaspora, while keeping the memory of that event alive, I think what is being kept alive, frankly, uh, that I see and the shifts that I see over time in diaspora remembrances and commemoration rallies and uh, never forget marches and so on, processions, is the move away from celebrating certain figures in uh, who were very key figures in the, uh, during the Khalistan movement. For example, Janel Singh Bindranwale. 
In the period immediately following his death in 1984, and for uh, for at least six years that I tracked uh, the kind of processions, the never forget rallies and processions, the insignia that people carried, the the kind of slogans they uh, spoke and so on and so forth. Bindranwale was very much forefronted there in that remembrance, in that remembrance rally. So never forget became something that was associated very closely with certain militant kind of politics. But over time, I've noticed that this has become more muted. The hurt, the feeling of injustice that is now in 2020 or well, 2019 uh, being uh, spoken of and 2018, which is when uh, I last looked at it in great detail, the wound that is still spoken of is the military occupation of the Darbar Sahib and the destruction of the buildings. That is still something that people do not want to forget and refuse to forget. But alongside that uh, remembrance of uh, that wound, of that takeover, there's a sense in which there's an alternative movement that I think is developing, which I find very interesting is to try and change the uh, stigma of the sick as militant to the sick as a seva uh, caregiver, a, a global caregiver, a humanitarian. So away from being militant to being humanitarian. And I think that so many of the uh, kinds of uh, voluntary activity around and within disaster zones when they have happened, the most recent being the Australian fires, uh, some years ago the Nepal earthquake and so on in the Kathmandu uh, earthquake. The people who were in the forefront of provisioning uh, shelter, providing food, langar, through langar and so on, were Sikhs. And because they uh, they came in their full, uh, you know, turbans and uh, kepans and so on, very identifiable, but very clearly providing humanitarian service to uh, communities and to around the globe. So there's a different kind of idea of globalization, of a sort of global identity of Sikhism being formulated, I think, right now. And it runs totally counter to the Sikh the Khalistan 2020, that is also uh, part of uh, today's uh, transnational politics of Sikhism and Khalistan. Um, this humanitarian yeah. movement is very distinctive. I, I find their uh, reflections on what Seva means and what Seva is about and how Seva identifies people is the identifying mark of who you are as a Sikh a very interesting part of the shift away from being militant, away from those memories onto something else. If I could just quickly return to the topic of memory, I learned from your book that there were serious issues and controversies surrounding the martyrdom of Bindanawale, which I believe were only really legitimized after, I think, 2007. Do you think that played a significant role in remembering Bindarawale in the diaspora, both visually and critically in keeping the narratives alive, largely due to the, you know, the strict sanctions that were placed in the homeland? Yeah, 
Yeah, I think certainly any form of commemoration, any form of commemoration of the events around 1984 and uh, certainly the destruction of uh, the Darbar Sahib and the deaths of many people uh, during that uh, event, specifically in that space, but also in Punjab generally, that was certainly prohibited by the Indian state for a long period of time after 1984. So there was a very clear uh, injunction and there was a very clear uh, set of laws which were invoked anytime there was an assembly of more than four people and so on. Uh, no commemorations of Bindran Wale or his, he was dead, of course, but even of his family members were allowed. But slowly some of these aspects started opening up and, uh, you know, certain uh, ways of commemoration started emerging and being also claimed as the right to practice religion, which is guaranteed by the Indian constitution. So the uh, jathas that came to commemorate, the vars that were sung in the Darbar Sahib in June um, and so on, they were all sort of positioned around the right to a constitutionally guaranteed right to practice religion as each religious community thinks fit. So commemoration had that, if you will, uh, aspect of trying, of needing to claim legitimacy under constitutional guarantee. But in so doing, uh, Bindran Wale was both sort of uh, sh- a very shadowy presence, uh, visually speaking, or in terms of slogans, but then started to emerge very strongly after the state itself loosened up, central state. And it's here that I think the remembrance of Bindran Wale in the diaspora has such a resonance. For so many people in Punjab, the fact that Bindran Wale's slogans, Bindran Wale, Zindabad, etc., were being recited in Trafalgar Square was something that was a story and a narrative that travels back. Um, they did begin thinking about uh, the events of 1984 as a kalukara, as a carnage, as a holocaust and so on. These were uh, terms produced within uh, diasporic um, uh, narratives and remembrances and forms of commemoration and most re- and e- even writing actually. So um, it seems to me that uh, the suppression of Bindran Wale, because there was, uh, I mean, on the part of the Indian state, the very fact that uh, he, he was such an emotive figure, killed in such a sort of dramatic way, uh, memory was not, um, you know, uh, uh, people's uh, connection with him was uh, had not loosened. Uh, one of the things that does happen, though, is that uh, that uh, that uh, censorship of uh, Bindran Wale almost seemed to present the Sikh community in India as being consolidated around Bindran Wale, as though everyone was a follower, a believer in the kinds of things that Bindran Wale stood for. And I think that kind of negated a set of people who were very uncertain about Bindran Wale himself. There was not everybody was a, a, a Sikh, was a, not every Sikh, in Punjab or in India, was a supporter of Bindran Wale and his policies. They they found them to be 
in fact, against the ethos of Sikhism, many of the uh, uh, the Mariada of Sikhism actually being uh, pulled down or uh, decimated by the kinds of things that Bhindranwale did, including his occupation of the Darbar Sahib. So the rumors around Bhindranwale's occupation of the Darbar Sahib and the militant uh, occupation of the Darbar Sahib during his tenure there from 82 to 84 when he was finally killed, um, when he finally died, the, that is also rife with rumor and, you know, of the kinds of activities that he undertook while he was there, which people felt was unreligious and which, which destroyed the sacred character of the Darbar Sahib itself. So not everyone was in such uh, support of Bindran Valley, uh, though this was a much less um, known and very muted kind of narrative response to Bindran Valley. I think there are countless more questions this conversation has invoked, especially for me, that I'm afraid they'll just have to remain on this notepad uh, in order for me to keep this conversation close to an hour. I mean, I learned so much from reading your books, uh, both Militant and Migrant and the Emirates 1984 book, which has really helped to form a framework of further reading, which I've already begun, you know, regarding 1984 and other areas related to Sikh migration studies. And I'm really happy we explored this conversation because I personally believe and I'm of the opinion that this discussion surrounding 1984 largely remains fixed on it as a single event. And I think your book really helps to reveal the complexities that existed and continue to exist in the historical, social and economic and political fabric of India. In particular, it helps to draw parallels with other regions of India that have undergone similar resistance movements and to somewhat contextualize what we are witnessing today. So thank you again, Professor Radhika Chopra, for coming on and discussing a little bit about your book, Militant and Migrant, as well as your research areas and the surrounding literature and analysis that you've been able to share with us in this forum. Also, thanks again to our generous Patreons that allow me to create these podcasts. So please do let me know which topics you'd like to hear from us next in the near future. I'd also like to thank our sponsor, Six Student Learning, and the thousands of followers across our social media pages that continue to motivate us to actively record and share Sikh history. We hope to continue to keep recording more podcasts and make more Sikh history accessible in audio format. So if you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please share with others so that we can attract more supporters that in turn help us to generate more episodes. Thank you. Thank you.